to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. With me today are Louis D'Souza and Anne-Marie Young. This is your Daily Dose of Happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. Indeed we are. We're hoping Anne-Marie can finish hooking in here. She's been having some uh, technical difficulties, which of course we're all familiar with around here one time or another. They tend to happen. So as soon as she's able to connect in, we will have her join us. But uh, Louis is here today sitting in his beautiful faux living room and with a beautiful faux piano behind him. So uh, have you been playing your faux piano lately, Louis? Well, Louis doesn't hear me right now. <laughs> I say he pointed to his ear like he couldn't hear anything going on. Oh, okay. Well, but, um, well, we'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll give him, a, it looks like it's technical difficulty day between him and Louis and, and Emery yeah. rather. Um, yeah. they're both, uh, kind of challenging, uh, with the technical stuff. Can't yeah. hear anything he says. I'm going to suggest that he try to log out and log in again. Yeah. So there's my reply to him. So anyway, well, while he is getting that sorted out, it's I want to. It, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I want to introduce our guest today. His name is Dr. Rick Cromie. Now, Rick, you have one of the more interesting resumes I've ever heard. Uh, I mean, we, we met on, on one of these places where you, you meet hosts and guests and so forth. And you describe yourself as a cultural historian, leadership imagineer, and inspirational edu trainer. So my first question is, how often do you invent new words? <laughs> well, the the irony of those words is over the course of what I what I, of my uh, my career, uh, if you or my journey of my career, is that those are words that have been put upon me, and I just liked them so much, I just adopted them. Uh, one one time, someone called me a lead. You're like a leadership imagineer, and I thought, <laughs> well, I like that one. I think I'm going to keep that one. And I've always looked at myself as a cultural historian, you know, because that's what I I'm highly trained. My doctorate was in emerging uh, culture and uh, leadership, and so I was uh, I've always been you know interested in that cultural historian perspective. And then the, the idea of inspirational edu trainer you know, just came to me as I was thinking about what do I want to do? And and my whole life story has been helping people to interpret history and navigate culture and explore faith and different things like that. A lot of teaching. I've been a professor. And so I just uh, wiped that all together into one little, you know, I'm inspirational. But what I want to do is I want to edutrain you. I just don't want to uh, spend some time with you. I, I want you to leave with insight and, and inspiration and hopefully a smile as well. Well, well, then you'll be pleased to know that I've learned something already because I did not know that you could get a doctorate in leadership. I yeah. had never heard of that. Yeah, it's my my the the actual uh, core degree is in my pastoral background. It's a doctor of ministry, but it is it was specialization leadership in the emerging culture, and ah, I was highly trained okay. in how to read cultural signs. I'm kind of like a weather forecaster. <laughs> uh, I, I go out there and, and I work with organizations and businesses, schools, even and churches, and help them to understand how culture is shifting and then you know where it's going. And even my book Gen Tech is all about that. It's about looking at generations and then moving forward into the future. Where are we going as as far as analyzing generations and understanding how we're going to play this out in the next few years? But I'm, I'm a weather forecaster. Doesn't mean I'm always right, like a for, forecaster. I, I can be wrong. But that's well, well, that's part of the fun of being a weather forecaster, right? Because they're wrong more often than they're right, and then they get to explain why. Well, it's now even worse, and here's why you should stay tuned to the program. I mean, that's the way weather forecasting works, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I 
you know, it's kind of funny weather. Right now it's snowing in Boise, so keep Oh, no kidding. Okay. <laughs> Which is a little bit odd. We don't get snow very much, but they did forecast that one right. We got we got that one correct. Well, here. okay. You know, well, yeah. occasionally you have to get one right when you're a forecaster. I mean, that's, yeah, you know, law, law of large numbers, really. <laughs> so it looks Anne-Marie. like Amory is hooked. Can you hear us now, Amory? I can hear you. Oh, hooray. Apologies. No, no. It's lovely to meet you. Sorry to be disrupting it. No, 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 not at all. I mean, it seems like the UK is the side of the pond that is having the technical issues because both you and Louie are having troubles connecting right now. So you got in. That's the good part. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what that's all about. I'm glad I can make it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you could make it too. And and you've been going through a lot lately. I won't go into details, but uh, are you recovered <laughs> from what you've been going through? Is the question I have for you. Give me a week or two. I'm there. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, that's fair. That's all's fair. good. All is good. We're all good. Still smiling. Okay. Well, hey, that's the best part, right? I mean, if you can come through stuff and you're still feeling good, pff, hey, you've done what you've done your job. You know, pat yourself Absolutely. on the back. And so let's see. Now, Louis is is hooked back. And Louis, can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Thanks. Oh, good. All right. So all four of us are here. So Louie meet Rick, Anne-Marie meet Rick. Louie and Anne-Marie, you know each other already. But <laughs> we were just chatting. It well, looks like I... Rick can't hear us. He's giving me a hard time. <laughs> just what we need, a technical uh, punster or jokester. Practical joker. Practical right, joker. Yeah. Yeah, that's the word, right? So anyway, uh, Dr. Rick here was telling me he, he actually has a doctorate in leadership, and I had never heard of that. And I thought that was pretty cool that you could get a doctorate in that. And I'm kind of curious what university was handing, handing that one out, but he told me it was tied to his uh, uh, degree, which is tied to ministry. So, okay, I can kind of you know make sense out of it at that point. But he was also describing himself as a cultural historian. Well, actually, I described him as a cultural historian reading off of his profile, but Ultimately, that means he's describing himself as a cultural historian. What exactly is a cultural historian? I mean, I know the word historian. I know the word culture. Do cultures actually have histories that are relevant to what we're doing today? (laughs) Yeah, they absolutely do. Uh, I look in particular at cultural narratives and look at the, the big stories that we tell ourselves and how even within cultures, we can have different stories we tell ourselves. I just got off a boat. I've been working. I've got a new work where I uh, cruise up the Columbia River from Astoria, Oregon, up to Clarkston, uh, Washington. And I was just talking the other day with a Cayuse Indian over there in Pendleton, Oregon, and we were having a cultural moment because his total view of an event that I looked at from my perspective was totally different. And we had a meeting of those cultures. And it was fascinating to me because that's what I do. I study uh, cultural narratives. And his cultural narrative was completely different on that story. And that's why we have different views of history, different interpretations. What I want to do is is understand the why. You know, there's always a why behind these things. And I like to look at those whys. And again, in generational analysis, one of the whys has been answered for me through technology. You know, we're not boomers or Xers or millennials or Gen Z, whatever that means. Those are ambiguous tags. <laughs> in fact, I love it how we're naming these uh, generations, at least in America, uh, by the alphabet. Uh, you know, we're, we almost have a coronavirus approach. You know, we're the alpha generation and the beta generation and the delta generation and eventually the Omicron generation. So I think that's how we're working it now. Yeah, we can't, we can't seem to decide whether we're using the Greek alphabet or Cyrillic or what. I mean, it's like switch from one alphabet to the next depending hey, on what year it is. I, my background's in, in 
in theology. So I have a, I actually studied classical Greek and I always think it's funny when they, in the early days, they were calling it the Omicron, Omicron virus. And I was laughing because it's the Omicron. There is two O's <laughs> in the Greek alphabet. There's out or the Omicron and then there's the Omega. The Omega uh-huh, is the long yes. O. So th- there is no Omicron. It's, it's Omicron. It's short O. But anyway, yeah, that's what I do. I basically bug people, you know, and uh, talk to them. I'm curious if you bug them, how well do they listen? Well, it's not, it's not about, uh, it's about me maybe agitating to a point where I get a little bit more of a story from them to understand why they believe what they do. You know, what understanding, just peeling back, uh, it's in our agitations that we start to peel back and try to defend ourselves. You know, we try to look deeper into our own story and you know, that's where I, I, you know, I love to listen to what pulls out of that. And just try to understand that. And like with my Cayuse Indian friend, it was, you know, for them, it was a story that's been told to them over and over and over again. So it's an oral tradition. It's an oral narrative. The problem with that is that, you know, in the case of, in the case of America, we, we're illiterate. We were a Western civilized culture and we were very literate. And, you know, Lewis and Clark had a number of journals, you know, just boatloads of journals. Uh, even the, the Oregon pioneers, as they headed west, they wrote all these journals. So we have all sorts of literature that actually contradicts the Cayuse Indian narrative. But, you know, my job there wasn't to point out those contradictions. My job was I was just trying to figure out the, uh, why he believed what he did. And it came back to the stories. He was told this story by his father and his grandfather and their great-grandfather and that makes sense and that's part of the problem that we have is you know at least today when i look at our culture uh, at least in america and it's probably the same other places in the world is that we live in these echo chambers we find those voices that we agree with and we just listen to them only and we tend to echo the echo chamber uh the media uh, and then that's instead of being open and that's what i want to do i want to be open to understand, to listen, and to hopefully make sense of the whole thing, and then help us help see the patterns. That's what a cultural historian does: is we look for patterns, like in the weather. You know, these are things that are happening in the past. They help us then to predict the future. I, I love the fact that you use the word belief. That's a topic mm-hmm. we bander around a lot yeah. around here. We, we 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 play with that that concept very often. And when you were talking about uh, the settlers who left this literature, these journals behind, it also occurred to me, I'm sure it occurred to you, you know, they also had their own beliefs. They had their own perspective on the world. So their stories were certainly told from the perspective of what yeah. they thought their experience was like as they're um, moving out west. And yeah. I'm sure it was quite different from the perspective of the people who they were encountering, encountering along the way. They just, they just came from a different viewpoint entirely, not let alone the culture. I mean, just they, they thought about life differently just because of who yeah. they were. So yeah. And I, the word belief, the, the word belief is, is a great word. It often gets uh, convoluted in a lot of other discussions. I like the word commitment for that. You know, there, there, we make commitments and those commitments are based upon what we believe to be true, right? So we have certain commitments in life. We have certain, those beliefs systems, uh, they're commitments that we make to, to understanding our world. Interesting you say that. We, when we talk about the word belief, we talk about it in the context of how a belief gets built up. And, mm-hmm. and the way we generally tend to describe it is a belief is a thought you think over and over again. Mm-hmm. So when you keep thinking the same thought over and over, you're, you're building, building up a belief. The way you're looking at it is more contextual than the way we're mm-hmm. looking at it. But 
still, two, there, there's an example of two different perspectives, two quite right. different perspectives on the same thing that kind of lead you to the same result, but just from two different directions. But at one point, you just said it, you think the thought over and over again, that's a commitment to that thought, is it not? You're making that's a commitment to think that thought over and over again. So, and that's that's to me, that's where belief starts to emerge, is you're mm-hmm. making a commitment to a particular idea mm-hmm. um, you know, or thought, yeah. So very interesting. Um, I'm also curious to know, when when you talk about yourself as an inspirational edutainer, how does that tie into cultural perspective? Because I can't honestly say that cultural history is the first concept that comes to my mind when I think about entertainment. Yeah, well... I guess th- those are just different. I'm a, as a, as an in- inspirational edu trainer, that's speaking more to a role than anything. I uh, okay. speaking to, uh, just, uh, what I do. Uh, I suppose it's also, um, based upon someone's perception. I, I could have an off day and not be very inspirational or edu training, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and those, those days happen. But in general, what I want to do is it, it's a commitment going back to that word. It's a commitment to be, inspirational in in the messages that I create and really be and by edu training what I mean is I want to be insightful as well I want to leave my audiences with a, a smile but I want them to leave going you know what I'd never thought of it from that perspective before that's interesting kind of like looking at the word value or belief versus and commitments you know I want to leave a little bit different spin on it I like that. I mean, I talk about perspective a lot here on the program, as both Louie and Anne-Marie can tell you. I, it's, well, it's the raison d'etre for why I do the, the show in the first place. I was looking for perspectives from day one, and I wanted to get as many of them as I could, and I got them, and it's wonderful. Yeah. And I love having all those perspectives because I've learned so much. I don't think there's a better way to learn than to get different perspectives from different people, particularly the, the further apart that the perspectives are, the more you learn about yeah. Not just the person, but, but what they have to tell you and what you can learn from them. So I think that's pretty cool. So share, us one, share one idea, just one thing that, that is not typical, perhaps, that you have learned that, make, that creates an inter, interesting perspective and leads oh. to some edu, edutrainment. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I call it, I'll give you one. I call it the rule of threes. Uh, this deals with, you know, you're talking about attraction. Uh, I often deal with how do, how do you motivate? One of my primary uh, workshops and sessions that I do is how do you motivate someone to do something? And, you know, there's a lot of people today that believe that what you do is you incentivize uh, motivation. If you give them a, a prize or, or something that's, that will, uh, that they'll, they want, that they'll, they'll do it. Uh, I tend to reject those types of incentives, those those external incentives. I believe that the best, the deepest type of motivation comes from within when we're, you know, for lack of a better word, self-motivated to do something. And so I, I, I have developed what I call the, the rule of threes. And, you know, this is this is that if you're looking at it as an organization, if you're looking at it as a as a person who's trying to attract someone and and retain them, it's not about just bringing them in the door. A lot of people are good. I mean, I work in the church world with a lot of pastors and churches, and and they're very good at getting people in the door, but they can't keep them. And so I try to help them understand the rule of threes. And it's simply the rules. The rule of threes is about three minutes, three three visits, uh, three weeks three months, and then three times three, nine months. Within that year period, there's a different need that's popping within each person, 
within each person. And so you have, for example, three minutes when you make an initial connection with somebody. I had three minutes here to really try to sell myself, to, to show who I am. You've got three minutes to satisfy the two, what I call primitive needs that we all have. And that is for security and for, um, pleasure. You know, the, we, we want to be pleased. We want to be in a situation where there's, uh, to use that word entertainment, you know, we look at that from a, almost like a balloon airy type of thing. I look at it from a pleasure perspective. It is, we just want to be in a pleasing environment. We want to have a smile. We want to enjoy what we do. And, but secondly, we want to feel safe and secure in that moment. Um, Again, I just got done with a job, and it looks like I've got continued jobs with this company where I'm going to be running a riverboat up the river. And, you know, a week or so ago, I walked onto a boat, and I didn't know anybody. <laughs> and I had the, the, the things I was going through in my mind where do I feel safe? Do I feel is this going to be fun? And within three minutes, both of those were answered. They immediately took care of me. And that's when I knew that I could work with this company. Because they made me feel safe, and they also it was it was going to be fun. Everybody on that boat had a smile, you know, everybody, and they were doing a lot of hard work, and it made me want to kick in. But within the first three visits, you know, the first time you think about three times a person goes to a store, you know, there's three visits. You you got to get past that, um, you know, safe and secure and pleasing part to now you got to start building a relationship. Is there something here? Is there some, that's how you, 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 you know, and the only way I've learned to do that is by, by just, uh, learning names. That's what I did on that boat with everybody. I started to learn their names. I didn't need to, I didn't need to look at their name tag. I just called them by their names eventually. And man, that was huge. And the why that's important <clears throat> for entertainment or presentations for those of you who give workshops and, and deliver messages is because I didn't speak until the last day. Um, I had one session on this boat. It was the last day. And when I got up, nobody was coming to the session. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. It was always maybe 20, 30 people. But I had built so many relationships through the week I was on the boat. When I got up to speak, the room was packed with people. And they were ready for my message. That's the law of attraction. You know, that's that whole idea. You know, we get what we get what we want. Well, some, what you have to do is build a relationship. And I'll stop right there. But really, those first three minutes and those first three visits or days, like in my case, I was on a boat. It's all about relationships. That's very cool. I like that. Now, you're, you're leading something in my mind. You're, you're leading me to some place I want to go instantly because uh, Louis, one of the things you need to know about Louis is almost all the stories he tells begins with I was in the sauna the other day. And I, I want I want to go to him on that point because he he is a sauna man. He loves going to his, his local health club, being in the sauna, and chatting with people about uh, all kinds of things in life. So, Louis, you heard what uh, Rick was talking about this power, this rule of three thing. Do you find what he was describing accurately describes your experience? Do you find first of all that there is a rule of three, and do you find yourself using the same kinds of uh, techniques that he uses, or do you just go at it a different way? Well, the way I go at it is I'm very, very clear about what I want. So I go in there with the image of having fun about sharing what I love, which is my understanding of life. So I'm walking in there saying I want to find those people that are interested slash ready or want to play with me. <clears throat> and uh, so me thinking in terms of three, I've never really done that. So 
I'd have to kind of go back and have a look. I mean, I've been thousands of stories in the sauna, so it's not just three. <laughs> but then again, seeing the same people three times, right. I'm trying to think. Um, yeah. Yeah, the third a- time is is a very different um, level of conversation than the first two. Yeah. yeah. Louis, do you find yourself after the third time you've been with that person, you, you know them by name? <clears throat> How to win friends and influence people. Yeah. One of the first things they teach you is remember people's names. So right. um, when I was at university, I used to sit at the back of the class and uh, remember everybody's name, every row. And every time I saw them in the morning, hi, Joe, Jack, James, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and um it made a huge difference it makes an incredible difference if you remember somebody's name you know um what i found even more important for me is to remember what they were talking about i can tell people philosophically exactly what they were saying when they were saying it and how they were saying it but i may for not know their name anymore <laughs> so um, I, I kind of looking at it from a different perspective. I'm looking at it from what's the really important thing I know about this person. Um, and the name will come generally four, four times. I find it's four yeah. times before I remember a name. I think yeah. the psychologists suggest that it's the fourth time you remember a name as well. But again, it all depends because I, I do memory techniques as well. So, yeah. um, I do a lot of, playing games and I'm on Discord and on Discord you're allowed to edit the notes. So I'm always putting there their name, their country, their occupation or any any bit of detail and then I'm always bringing that up when I'm talking to them um, and it's reminding me. But again, if I have a deep conversation with them, something that is really meaningful specifically to me um, and then they interact well with that, then that conversation will never leave my mind. Um, that's why all the stories I can bring up from the sauna are endless because I won't remember their names, maybe not even their faces, but I'll know exactly the story. <laughs> the story will be absolutely um, exact. Yeah, the stories are, are the, the driving force of our, life, our, our lives, aren't they? I mean, first of all, when you talk about entertainment, that's what all entertainment is really built around it's built around the stories yeah. and, and they, they date back to uh the earliest times we know about when you know stories were told around the campfire i mean it's just a major part of our life now i'm going to ask you from as from the perspective as a cultural historian how important are stories i mean in in terms of of how cultures come together and how our, our understanding of history comes together because well as many people point out even the word history is his story so right you know right yeah it's a there, you you can't talk about your history without seeing the story in the word itself. It is totally about stories, which is why Western civilization once post what I call the Gutenberg era, era, once we were able to mass produce information on a page and print it and get it out, uh, that's when the world really, you think about the university systems, you think about everything that exploded in the, in the last 600 years uh, behind the Gutenberg press. Uh, that, that ability to mass produce information was so important. That's something my Caius friend couldn't do. They didn't mass produce any information. It was only the stories that they reproduced. And that story was only as good as they remembered it. Mm-hmm. See, once you put a story down on paper, there's more permanency to it. 
And, you know, and the more you mass produce it, even if one part of the story gets burned over here or destroyed, you can have the same story over here that's that's still valid. And that's why libraries become so important is because they're retainers of knowledge from multiple different places, eras, contexts, cultures and such. So the Gutenberg uh, project, if you will, or the Gutenberg uh, um, invention was was a huge move or a huge uh, a movement for uh, for us as a culture, uh, but for those cultures who did not have the writings, it's one of the reasons why the Cherokee. If you look at the Indian culture in America, the Cherokee were fascinated with the idea that they they saw these white pieces of paper with with odd bird scratch writings on them, and and that's they called them talking leaves because they realized that these these leaves could talk to one another. You can read it and and know something, and it's one of the reasons why Sequoia, the the Cherokee Indian, was so fascinated. He he created the the the, the Cherokee alphabet from that. It was all about remembering their story so they could write it down. They were they were they were light light years ahead of the other Indian tribes in that way, mm-hmm. uh, but. Story is important, but it's only as important as as its permanency, because stories can change otherwise. And libraries certainly are important too. The modern day library <clears> being <throat> the internet, and uh, Anne Marie and Louis and I are uh, we're, we're librarians in a sense, partly because of doing the show. Uh, we also we're also part of a group. I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Lynn McTaggart. Um, she wrote a book called The Power of Eight. Basically, it's kind of similar to the idea of group prayer, but it, it's group intention. Um, and all three of us are involved in that. But I mean, I, I mentioned these things because, because these are all examples of how the modern day books are being written online. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, Anne Marie, it makes us possible to even talk to each other. You're in the UK. Louis in the UK. I'm in Connecticut. He's in Boise, Idaho. I mean, you know, we're about as far apart as you can get and we can have these conversations, which is really, really cool. But this is our library, isn't it? And, and these are the stories that we're telling. And yeah, not only that, but we're recording it right now. And we're recording it for future generations. Which, That's right. depending on how all the different platforms it goes on, it could literally go on for hundreds of years, maybe even millions of years. We could have these things still hanging out there uh, because of, of how we just how we keep it. Um, one of the things I started doing during the COVID moment was I, I started collecting uh, uh, pre-1900 history books. There was just something fascinating <laughs> about that. But where do you, when I started to collect them, you know, hundreds of dollars to buy these books if you wanted to get them in print. And then I realized Google was doing it for me. <laughs> and I went to Google. I, I, I read something that, that was from a historian and, and they quote a book that was written like in 1805 or 1815. And I Google that guy's off the, the, the 1815 book and I find it's on Google. You can download it in a PDF for free. So I literally have a library of thousands of books right now uh and it fits in my ipad i can take it anywhere i want but this library is all books that have been penned i think the latest i go is maybe 1930 they're all old old books you cannot find unless you're privileged enough to be in one of the 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 yale or the the harvard libraries out there that have these huge collections but they're all digitized folks yeah how about that and you can read it all for yourself it's pretty cool. There's no doubt about that. And what's also cool is, is, is not just <clears throat> create a public library. They're like little private libraries. That's what I was referring to with this, this group that we have. It's a Facebook group. It's a private group. Um, Amory basically runs it. And, and Amory, I mean, that's what we're doing there, right? We're, we're basically not just collecting stories, not just sharing stories, 
we're, we're helping to influence stories. Which is, we're building stories, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that has an amazing, powerful impact. Uh, that I don't think we fully grasped how powerful that is. I mean, I know Louis gets like super excited with what happens in the, in the groups, but I mean, from your point of view, Anne Marie, what, what, what do you see as like the biggest takeaway from having this ability to share these stories with each other in, in what's really a rather intimate section of the internet? It's, yes, it is very intimate. It's, it's all very personal, but you just, you watch other people grow and you're growing yourself at the same time. And it's, it's just like you're all expanding together and you're all just making this story. Like you say, it's a story, but it's just getting so intense. It's almost like watching a film and it's a thrill and the thrill and the thrill and the thrill. And yeah, but fortunately this doesn't have to end. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the story that never ends really. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Talking about stories, Rick, I wanted to tell you one I think you might find interesting. Okay. That's uh, appropriate. Um, I read a book on Kindle <laughs> um, about a black South African Sangoma, which is a witch doctor. Okay. So from a young age, he was literally beat him into memorizing all the truths and understandings of the Sangoma. And, um, it was horrendous. The, you know, if they got it wrong, the punishment was dire. <laughs> and, uh, but they needed to make sure that they memorized it perfectly. They didn't want to lose any of it. And, you know, they didn't have writing in the old days. And that was the way they passed on the knowledge. And it's also the way when the new, when the letter came out, um, that they could keep it private and hidden and all the rest mm. of it by only passing it on to those. So this guy wrote a book basically telling everybody exactly what he was forced to learn. And he brought it out into the public, much to a lot of people's uh, disagreement. Um, but, it, but it was really fascinating um, to, and to understand the level of clarity that, because if you ever asked, you know, I was brought up in South Africa and, if you ask somebody, what do the blacks believe in South Africa? You wouldn't really know. It would be, it's kind of like a mixture between Christianity and some of their yeah. old beliefs. And one of the old beliefs that I can remember that they kind of, I knew was they revered their ancestors. But once you start looking at this book, this uh, Sangoma's book, which doctor's book, you started realizing that almost everything we've been learning in the law of attraction and from Abraham Hicks, et cetera, is in there. <laughs> and it's just amazing. It's really, really amazing. They understand, understood it to a really interesting and, and from a very different perspective, um, on, on a very same, same similar topic. Um, they just use different words in different ways. And it was fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. Can, can you give an example of, of, like one particular example of how it was a different perspective that expressed the same general idea? Uh, it's been a while since I read it. Um, so, you know, we talk about source energy. Mm -hmm. um, they used a completely different word and way of describing it. Um, and for the life of me, I can't quite, but it, it was very unique. They used a lot of 
animals and the way the animal was portrayed and perceived, etc. And I can imagine the American Indians are very similar because of their close link to nature. Um, so a lot of them were all linked into the animals. Uh, and the different animals were representative of different aspects of source energy and guides, etc., etc. Yeah, Native Americans have done amazing things in terms of, of how their cultures came together and mm -hmm. they were able to, they, while they didn't have uh, written language, they were still able, like, um, what's, what's the name of the uh, the tribe in South Africa that you just described? Um, the, the, the book. That would probably be the Zulus. No, well, I mean, the, the particular tribe that, that the witch doctor was from, he wrote the book on, on their <clears throat> collected wisdom. I can't remember what the name of that, that tribe is or that, that collective group. Did yeah, I can't remember either. Um, there's, oh, okay. there's over 200 different tribes in South Africa. Oh, okay. Well, all right. <laughs> yeah. The biggest I'm one in is South Zulu, Africa. So I pointed to that, but. <laughs> but I guess my point is that the, um, um, the, the fact that despite not having written language, they were still able to put together in such detail and retain in such detail. Mm so much useful and in interesting information, not just to themselves, but and much to their dismay, they, it was revealed to the world. We find it to be interesting. We find it to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. And and that that points to two things to me. First of all, it points to just how well Native tribes, Native, Native groups and associations around the world have been able to maintain their ability to keep information over time, despite not having the written word, but also the ability that we have today to take all this and aggregate it together largely through the internet, but in also a, a variety of other ways to the point where we can all share this information now. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's just, to me, that I, after a while we get to the point where we start breaking down cultural barriers at that point, cultural barriers start falling apart. And I, I think probably the best example of that is right here. I mean, on the Monday show, I'm, I'm talking with a, uh, a gentleman who was brought up in South Africa now lives in the UK, a woman who was born raised in, and raising her family in the UK. And we're doing it like, you know, we're great friends at this point. Yeah. That, that's just, that was unheard of 30 years ago, let alone 130 years ago. 130 years ago, it was inconceivable. 30 years ago, it just was unheard of. <laughs> yeah. It was at least believable at that point, but it was not, it was not accepted as everyday thing. Now it's an everyday thing. Yeah. And, and part of that was, part of that's because of our, there, there's cultural fear going on there too. We're afraid of what we do not know. And people that are different from our, use that word echo chamber again, you know, they, they create a fear. Um, I, I, I just got done talking about the Oregon Trail pioneers as they, they moved west here in America. And they were so afraid of the Indian, for example, when mm -hmm. they set out from Independence, Missouri, absolutely terrified that they were going to run in, uh, to Indians and they were going to be just, you know, just attacked. In the end, the Indian was very friendly and helpful to them. Mm -hmm. they, they found them fruit. Uh, they were starving to death. They found them fruit. Uh, they helped them across rivers. They helped them navigate mountains. Uh, the Indian proved to be their best friend going out west. The only thing the Indian didn't realize was that there'd be 300,000 of them coming out west. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> that became a different story after a while. It did become a different story, but yeah, and that, that actually does get overlooked a lot. I mean, the vast majority of Native American tribes and, and uh, associations were actually really, really 
cool cultures. They were just really great, great people. They're they're helpful. They were caring. They were just you know they were just wonderful people. That kind of gets swept under the carpet at times, which is really rather unfortunate. But then there's there's the other side of that too. There's there's a narrative out there right now that that says that they were always a peaceful uh, type of people. Uh, That's not true. The Indians were always at war with each other. You know, they they immediately recognized the the white people coming out had more power because we had things like guns and horses and different things like that and and we just had more power and 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 by in the end it was numbers but they were constantly at war the crow were always fighting against the sioux and the blackfeet were always fighting against the nez pierce it was that's just who they were their their cultures were constantly battling so they were used to that uh conquest type of culture you you conquer you conquer a certain territory you get all the goods um, and and and, our, and Europeans were also. I mean, Europe yeah. is, is probably well known for endless war than any other continent on the face of the planet. And and you know the struggles continue to till today. The the fact is, I mean, probably have more written knowledge about it just because more has been written about what happened on that that continent. But I mean, just incredible how how much war goes on. And yet, and yet. Despite all that, I would still argue that the people of Europe and the Native American cultures and other cultures around the world are predominantly peaceful, are predominantly um, not interested in fighting. The, the number of people in any different yeah. culture who are interested in fighting is actually a very small percentage. Yeah, I, and I say that would be, be the same for the, the Oregon pioneers as well. Yeah. They, they were they were just going out to find a new place. There was an economic uh, recession going on that had crashed the the economy in 1837, and, and a lot of them said, we got to get out of here. we got to find a different place. And Meriwether Lewis from Lewis and Clark had, had said that the Willamette Valley there in Oregon was gorgeous. Come on out. And a 1,000 missionaries had already made the trip out there to, to, to work with the Indians and to educate them and such and to show them, in their case, they were motivated by, by Christian uh, Christianity. But there was already a trail going, and, and – but most of the people went out. It wasn't until the gold rush and some of those other uh, uh, that brought more of the greedy type out there. And then things started going a little south in the west. And you had the outlaws and such. But those were lo- more in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. It, it, it changed. The west changed. But well, also that, right. a lot a lot of that was also picked up by Hollywood and by the the various entertainment uh, vehicles yeah. that create movies and television shows and so forth mm-hmm. that create a, an image in our mind that really is not representative of the vast majority of people who lived even in the 1870s 1880s yeah. Yeah. Uh, just we we we, we cherry pick the the real troublemakers and then we make these big movies and we say well everybody was like that well, well they yeah. aren't <laughs> yeah you know a, a good example of this and then I'll shut up on this cuz I you know I I could talk all day on this particular one but I'm from Montana I'm a native montanan uh and everybody likes to ask me about there's a show called Yellowstone here in the states which has this this Dutton family that is a native montana family and everybody asked me are, are all the montanans like the duttons i'm going we are nothing <laughs> like that family uh that family has i mean if i said half the the profanity if i even said one of those profanities that that they that it's just all over the show you know it, it would never have happened native montanans tend to be much more polite uh they're very open we're very gregarious uh, it's just it's just not who we are. But the Dutton family is actually the opposite of who we are, and everybody thinks we're like the Duttons now. And I'm just going, <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
Yeah, Hollywood. As you say, the Dutton thing. family, it makes me think of the Walton family. <laughs> <laughs> That's everybody, a good family. There's That's a good, a good family. family. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody from Virginia is like the Waltons, right? Yeah. <laughs> which is, it does which seem, is actually, yeah. I was going to say, it does seem like we all have labels nowadays. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of them created. Yeah. And then we than go just create our own. Being ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, those that, echo chambers. That is the echo chamber, yeah. But that, that's also where I see the internet playing a huge role because as we get to know each other, I think those labels start to fall apart. Yeah. In fact, we're seeing it with institutions already. I mean, we, we could broad brush descriptions of it, but uh, the large institutions that have been around for generations are starting to crumble because people are seeing through all the veils that were put up with years to serve the institutions. And now they're just seeing each other as people. Which I think is a wonderful improvement, but I, yeah. I I don't really see that that trend changing. I think it actually is going to accelerate because we're still in an age where technology just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That means we get closer and closer and closer. I don't know how much longer culture is going to last as an individual culture. I mean, I'm curious to know what your take is on that, but I think I think kind of melting pretty quickly, being yeah. the beyonds, but still. <laughs> we're going to have a planetary culture. Yeah. That's really we're we're going to have other it. planets to deal with. <laughs> we'll, we'll be colonizing them too, I'm sure. But well, I think, yeah. I think we're going to be more, glo- we're obviously going to be more global, mm. but I see the opposite happening. I, I think again, because of these echo chambers that are going on, I think they're going to continue to drive social media can, continues to drive this. We're going to become micro cultures. Our cultures are going to be very mm. tight knit and specific and you may only have 20 people in this culture but it's going to be your culture so that's where i kind of see it going myself so kind of pointing to the idea of finding your tribe to use the modern term yeah except there's going to be 200 (laughs) tribes inside the tribe so basically what we're talking about is global balkanization Sure. And it keeps getting, keeps subbed up. Well, to me, that's just, that's just the, the melding effect. That, that, that to me is just the whole thing just starting to, to blur the boundaries. But right. I guess, yeah, they're both different ways of looking at but it. But a hundred years ago, if you came to America, you had to learn English. Everybody had to learn English. You know, you, you went to school. They didn't teach in a different language. You learn, you either learn English or you, you went hungry. I mean, so, but that's changing today. You know, uh, I talked to a principal in Oregon just la- a couple of weeks ago on a plane, and he was telling me he has 17 different languages in wow. his middle school, 17 languages, and they've got three or four people that can talk a number of those languages. Uh, but, yeah, people aren't learning, and at least in America, they're not learning. These subcultures are already happening. They're staying within their language groups, and they're learning other ways to adapt but uh, they're they're teaching their kids their own language, not the not the English. I would think. Now you tell me, maybe I'm mistaken here, but I would think that school that has 17 languages in it, there's going to be some growth overlap going on, mm-hmm. <clears throat> because as kids become friends, you know, friend A has English and and language X, and friend yeah. B has language Y in English, and then they start teaching each other bits of language X and language Y. Right. Which is where languages change then. Right. I mean, that the whole thing in America, American English is different than uh, English English. Right. <laughs> you know, because of the Americans don't speak English. <laughs> 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 touche. Touche. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we don't speak French either. So, well, <laughs> but Kuna Matata, that's all I have to say. <laughs> what was that, Louis? Jumbo, jumbo. Um, you asked me uh, in this in this book what the different beliefs were. So the aliens, this is an extract from the book. The aliens teach you that God created the soul. Now, we're the aliens, by the way. Ah, okay. <laughs> the, the Europeans that arrived in Africa. Mm-hmm. The aliens teach you that God created soul, and we say this is not so. The soul is an integral part of God, and all souls were created when God created himself. The soul exists simply because God exists. The soul, like God, has no reason for existing, neither has it any reason for not existing. One can neither deny or prove the existence of a soul, but listen very carefully now, my son. For your spiritual foremother will tell you more secrets which you must pass on to the future generations of the chosen. The human being and an animal has something else in addition to the soul which exists within him. We call, we can call this something else a self. When a child is born, it does not possess a self. The self builds up slowly from the memories and thoughts and experiences as it grows. So, you know, it's really, really deep. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There's a lot that, that, uh, our little group here, our, our tribe here mm-hmm. would, would uh, associate with very easily. I mean, not necessarily a hundred percent of it, but there's a lot there. Yeah. Really interesting. But Just a different show. way of looking at a similar very. belief structure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, ultimately, I think that one of the great strengths of humankind is that we are able to create an infinite number of belief structures. And that's, that's really what we're kind of exposing here. The fact that when you have so many cultures, so many subcultures, so many mini cultures, so many finding your tribes, it's, it's an endless series of creations of culture mm-hmm. over and over and over again. I mean, and, and it's not like, I mean, you tell me different, Rick, but it's not like cultures are static, right? They're constantly evolving. No, they're very dynamic. They're, they're always moving. Uh, uh, culture is ever changing. Uh, yeah. Which is pretty cool. The, the interesting thing about a witch doctor in the Bantu belief is that it, it really, really relates to a priest. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you wanted to compare it to Western society, it, it's just really their priest. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which means what? What, what, do you, what, what, what do you draw from that, well. though? What, 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 what conclusion can you draw from that? I mean, when you hear, when you compare that to, say, uh, a Western church leader, that kind of a thing, where do you see that playing out? How, how does that become an important thing? Well, you've got to ask, why is it an important thing to have a priest in the Western society? And I think the answer is we come to certain conclusions, deductions, and understandings, and we found them prof- uh, uh, profound, and we want to share them for future generations and keep them safe and share them. So, and I think it's the same with both. I don't think there's any difference with either. I think it's the same concept both ways. Hmm. Okay. I'm curious to see what, what your take is on, on that, Rick. What, when, when you think of that concept, I'm still processing it. I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more before I, uh, okay. pull, a, pull a string there and give you my thoughts, but yeah, I'm, I'm still processing that. That's a it sign is. of a good scientist. <laughs> Still <laughs> gathering the data. Yes. Well, there's there's time where you have to keep your mouth shut and just really listen. And you know, I'm I'm listening right now. Okay. I'm learning. That's Rick, I've, 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 I wanted to know if you know Carolyn Mace. 
No, I have not read read or, or heard of her. No. Okay. So she's was originally called a medical intuitive. So she would just look at you and say, you know, at this age you had um, a miscarriage and this age you did this and this age you did that physically. You know, basically about the medical state of the body. She could literally read it. Hmm. A doctor would phone her from another city who was looking for medical intuitives and he would say, I've got Deborah and she'd say, no, no, stop. This, this, this happened at this time and that, you know, and should go on. She should be able to see it all. But she is a fast, she's fascinated with history, which is why I bring this up. But history more related to health. So she would take something like AIDS and she would say, the demographic of people that get AIDS are people that feel um, un, un, undertrodden. What, 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 what is the word? When somebody treads on you? Downtrodden. Uh, downtrodden. Vulnerable, downtrodden, etc. Oppressed, mm-hmm. you know, not seen, recognized, etc. So you look at the mm-hmm. gay community, you look at different parts of Africa, etc. Um, and you look at all the different countries that suffered the most with AIDS. And she, she's put this all together and she's got all the data and the stats and all the rest of it. And it's just fascinating to see, um, how she's put the whole history side uh, together, um, to understand the whole health aspect of, of the different diseases, et cetera. Hmm. So does she, would she say that you're more susceptible based upon your behavior? Or your your lifestyle to that is that what is that what I'm hearing? Well, well, basically, in any group of people that feels um, oppressed is more likely to get AIDS. So, if you look at the UK, has hardly ever suffered any of it. But when I was in South Africa, it was massive. But it was massive amongst the black population as opposed to the whites. Etc. Etc. So when you start looking at all the demographics, it all starts fitting in very, very, very clearly. As you know, to people who feel more downtrodden, um, it, it tends to affect them more. And uh, you know, she's made loads and loads and loads of different um, comparisons with different um, different ailments and, and different diseases, etc. And of course, she also has the ability to see these things directly. <clears throat> very interesting. Emery, when you when you think about what we're talking about here, this this whole notion of being able to um, apply what a culture has developed or or created as a, as a knowledge mm-hmm. structure, and then use that as a way of expressing um, their viewpoint, their their worldview. When you when you think about that. From your worldview, I mean, you grew up in the UK. You grew up uh, from from the point of view of uh, having grown up uh, the, the the hub of the British Empire. How do you see that? How do you experience that when you think about that concept? I think for me, I've, what I was thinking a minute ago is I, I just see a lot of our learnings and a lot of our history just being swept under the carpet. Um. So I find that incredibly sad. I think as the UK, we've got such a massive history. Um, it, it's beautiful. So you see it everywhere. You see houses hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, but then when we're pulling down statues and we're pretending this didn't exist and we're not going to teach this at school anymore, it just worries me 
that we're going to lose the lessons that have been learned from generations. Hmm. I, I actually agree with you there. I think that hmm. that's a, a very, uh, uh, that, it, it is true. I mean, I, I can understand the perspective that we have to, you know, um, rethink the way we're doing things. I can understand some of that. But, Absolutely. You know, I think that can still be done by reminding people of, of who we are by <laughs> the stories of, of what's true. I mean, you know, you here in America, there's not much we can do that, uh, you know, the, the, the South existed. The South had, it was slavery existed. It was something, but tearing down the statues of someone like Robert E. Lee is not going to, you know, fix that issue. It's about a people embracing that we're not going back. And in many ways, yeah. it's already been fixed because there's, you can't, you, slavery hasn't been in, in, in America since, uh, 1865, 1868, you know, so. Well, not officially. Over. Yeah, <laughs> I, I say that because I, I say that because what we're really you talking about. You say that because about, your wife's got you under the thumb, isn't it? Ah. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that's what we. That, that, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah, you know, okay, that's that's, a, that, that's one perspective. That, that's actually not the one I had in mind, but you know that that is one perspective. No, no. What what I, what I was thinking about is is how we have um the these. We're, we're, we're having a conversation that started off about uh, talking about people who have a victim mentality. Mm-hmm. And that's a topic we address here a lot on the show. Um, so I think that's one of the, of the reasons why I'm going there. But that mentality plays out in a lot of different ways. It has a lot of different consequences that come along with it. It has a number of different um, challenges and problems that it creates. And it's very easy to dismiss it as being something, well, we just don't want, we should get rid of it. I'm not so sure it's a smart idea to dismiss it. I think it's an important thing to address it and to encourage ourselves and each other to, you know, look within and say, okay, am I a victim? To what degree am I treating myself as a victim? To what degree am I encouraging others to think of me as as a victim? I think there's a lot of growth to be done there. But I I wouldn't want to get rid of the idea that, um, that, that victimhood ha- has played a major role in our society and that we we should you know, basically just ignore the fact that it, that people are affected by it, that people still feel they, they feel victimized. There's no other way to, to describe it. They, when you're a victim, you feel victimized. I, I think that needs to be addressed. I think it needs to be um, helped. The, the only challenge I think, the, the only problem, I think it's a problem, that that is not being addressed is we tend to look at victimhood as something to be fixed by the outside. And this kind of ties back to what Rick was talking about at the very top of the program, the idea that victimhood is something <clears throat> that needs to be addressed by cultures and by societies and by uh, races, whereas I think victimhood needs to be addressed within. I think it needs to, to – so I'm, I'm kind of curious what each of you – perspective is on that. I'm going to go to the cultural historian first because he's the guest, but what's your, what's your take on that? Wow. You know, as you were talking, and since we, we brought in race and that type of uh, conversation there for a moment, you know, I was thinking, uh, I I did a lot of, again, reading in the last couple of years uh, and especially during what we call black history month here in the States, February, uh, just studying the, um, the narratives of, of black history. You know, because if you just listen to the the people today, if you if those were the only people you're listening to, the black leaders of today, 
you would hear, you know, like you're just talking about a very a victim type of narrative that's emerged. You know, we're still victims. We're still oppressed. We're still, you know, these things are still happening. We're still enslaved. I've actually heard black leaders today say they're still slaves. Mm-hmm. They're still enslaved to the system yeah. and this idea of systemic uh, racism. It's interesting to me that that is brought up because until 19, really the mid 60s, if you look at black America in general, they had what I would call a liberty narrative and not, not a, not a, a, a victimhood narrative or a slave narrative. Let's just call it slave narrative, narrative. Up until 1965, when you think about all the way up, Martin Luther King Jr. is probably the last great messiah of the slave narrative. But if you go back to Sojourner Truth, if you go back to, um, you know, Frederick Douglass and you look at Booker T. Washington and, and all those great black leaders and speakers and then even the, the individuals like Jackie Robinson, you know, in, in baseball, you see not a victim narrative, not a, not a slave narrative emerging, but you, you see a, a liberty narrative. We're free. We can do anything we want. Yes, Jim Crow still has laws down in the South. Yes, there's still segregation, but we're going to beat it. We're going to keep going and we're going to eventually beat it. You know, Booker T. Washington, his school, the Tuskegee Institute was down in the South for Pete's sakes. I mean, he lived in the South and there was a lot of segregation going on, Jim Crow racism, but he still beat it with a narrative of liberty. Not poverty, not enslavement, not victimhood. It was liberty that really pushed his his narrative of his school and his students. And I think we forget that. Um, we, we've moved in a different direction. and Maybe that's the pendulum swung the other way now, and it's going to start swinging back, and we can start to recapture some of those old ones. I, I don't know. But as you were talking, that's what I was thinking. And, okay. Yeah. All right. That's a that's a valid perspective, um, Louis. What's your take on on this whole idea of uh, the victimhood that I was re- I was referring to? Well, let's let's paint a picture from my own life. Um, do you know how many countries Great Britain didn't invade, conquer, occupy? I do, but only because you told me the answer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's twenty three. I can say it's in the 20s. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we understand why most of the world speaks English. So, um, but, you know, as a, (laughs) the king's English. It does make sense. (laughs) Um, but as, as a kid, I was brought up in white, white South Africa, um, during the apartheid and I went to school and they taught me all about the Boer War where the British came over decided we had too many diamonds and golds and they wanted it all. Um, and uh, brought all the troops across, which were with nice uh, red jackets and shiny buttons. So we little farmers stood behind trees who were excellent marksmen because they'd been shooting off the land forever and, and shot them. And uh, eventually they brought more and more guns and, and, and more and more things. And they took over town after town after town. And... Um, Eventually, they got all the major towns, and but then the Boers were still derailing trains and all all supplies and all the rest of it because they would just go to their farm, pick up all their supplies, and then they would run around and dis- disrupt everything of the British. And they didn't know how to stop all this. So what they did is they round up all the women and children. They put them in a concentration camp, one of the first concentration camps ever, 
and they didn't feed them or look after them well, and they all started dying. So the mm. Boers all surrendered because the, the women and children were dying. So I'd just been told all of this at school, so I come home, and I say to my mom, Mom, I hate the British. She says, do you know where I come from? I say, uh, England. She says, yeah, well, that's Britain. Do you hate me too? <laughs> um, and I said, no. <laughs> and, uh, so... <laughs> So, so you know, you've got a whole complicated web there. Now you can look at the British, okay, as as having done terrible things. I mean, if you want to compare who's killed more people in the world than any other country in the world, it's Great Britain, hands down. Absolutely hands down. You go look at the figures. Um, it's it's uh, it's just the way it is. But you can you can look at it as Great Britain. Um, you, you know, every subject's two subjects. You can look at Great Britain as as somebody terrible, or you can look at all the good that they've done. And there's loads that they did that was good. I mean, you can go on and on and on and on about it. So where is your focus? Are you going to be focusing on what they did wrong, or are you going to be focusing on what they did right? And, you know, that goes for every subject, every race, everything. Every subject's two subject. Where are you focusing? You were talking about they were focusing on on being victims rather than than looking for liberty and, and fighting for 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 the freedom and, and, and the the ability to, to be equals, etc. So where's your focus? Mm-hmm. And what are you jamming down somebody else's throats? If you want somebody to listen to you, they're not gonna listen to you if you if you keep on saying, Oh, we're slaves, we're we're underdogs, you keep on treating us badly and da 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 and they go on and on and on. Nobody's gonna listen. They're just gonna blank out. But if you say we want more freedom, we want more respect, we want mm-hmm want this, people are going to start listening. Let's see how we can do that. Let's sit down and discuss it. So it's it's all about people's perspective. You know, are, are they focusing on what they want or what they don't want, which is a basic law of attraction understanding. You know, focus more on what you want, less on what you don't want, and you can move forward in your life. And uh, so that's the basic principle, I think, that is really, really important to underlie all these topics and all these understandings. Emery, do you want to weigh in? Okay, mine's, mine's not a dissimilar meaning along that. Mine was going to be sort of about my experience of like, you know, when I started working 30 years ago, um, it was a very different environment to work in. And I remember that, you know, working for a company and it, they employed women because it made the boys come to work because we look pretty <laughs> and things like that, you know. And that was <laughs> that was from high up. And it, it did seem very much a man's world and you know, we never got paid the same. And I just remember feeling very victimized then. And there was lots of horrible things going on. But obviously now as I've gone on and I don't focus on that and I don't feel that anymore. So it may still be going on for people who have that view. Um, You know, I'm not paid the same. This is happening. Men treat me, want me to make the coffee. You know, you're going to see what you want to see. And for me, I don't see it anymore, so I don't experience anymore. I have my own inner power, so I will shine where I want to. I'm not going to take notice of anybody else. If you want to say something to me, I'm not going to listen to that. So, again, it goes back to what Louis said, is I will focus on what I want, not what I don't want, and I don't wish to focus on the lack. 
Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Really good. Uh, I want to bring in a comment from uh, somebody listening in the live stream because I think it ties in with what we're talking about here. Uh, this person says, I do understand what you all are saying. What would you say when opportunities are still very limited in a particular race rather than others? Well, it depends on what the limitations are. Uh, you know, I think uh, if they're economic limitations, then we work to try to to create some some of those disparities and and remove those disparities and and such but you know there's some there's just some opportunities you know i i would wish i i would love to have played baseball for example growing up i that was my dream was to be a professional baseball player but i'm five foot four so what do you think <laughs> I, I just don't have the size for it i wanted to play football but there's a certain spot where i can only play football you know, we we can be limited by a lot of things, and and sometimes, and that's not a racial thing, but in my case, you know, it was I couldn't change my size. What you have to do is is find where you're at. Now, I I, I think it would be great to to have more, you know, more wide open doorways in the sciences and a lot of places. I love to I love to see what what what's going on there. There's a lot of a lot of that's happening right now, where we're seeing more doors opening, and and that's great. Uh, but uh, I guess we just don't know what some of some of the limitations. It's it's hard to get around those. It is a challenge. Do you guys have anything? I'll, I can jump in if you guys don't have something right away. Yeah, just Richard Bach's statement. Okay. I'll give you limitations, and they're yours. Mm-hmm. Right, and I would that. Before we go to what Emery was saying, want to expand on that in the context of what this particular person was was saying in the in the live stream? I do understand what you are saying. What if the opportunities are still limited? Limited is a limitation. So argue for your limitations. Um, So I have seen incredibly successful people of alternative color to the white. Um, in, in all demographics. Um, and, and the thing that you will find makes them successful is their belief structure. Because what Amory was saying is she has decided that this is what she believes. And now, of course, the universal law of attraction is going out there, finding out people and situations and companies and places and all the rest of it. And it's bringing to her the cooperative components to what now, what she now believes. So she's not arguing for limitations. She's clear about what she wants, and she's now drawing towards her where her belief structure is, and, and that's really the way it works. And as soon as people really, really get that and understand that, it's just a complete change in their life. And if you really change what you mean, always what you say, not just the words, you really have to mean it, okay, then you will see the universe around you will completely, absolutely, and utterly change. Can, can I add a, a point to that? Um, th- this question is interesting to me, and, and I appreciate the Facebook uh, person who wrote it. But here's my, at least from the American context, I think this is true, that um, when you look at opportunities being very limited to a particular race, I think that's missing the point. When you look at, when you look at our culture today, the greatest limitation is your, your wealth. The, the 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 wealth of your parents, the wealth of your family, and that that has nothing to do with race. Um, you know, I grew up in a very poor white family. All most of my family is still poor and white. I was the only one that went to college. I was the only one that got a graduate degree. I was the only one that got you know went as far as I have. But the success in my life is because I broke the cycle, 
And I did it by reframing my mindset. I like to say there's three types of people in the world. There's winners, whiners, and wieners. <laughs> Winner, winners are 10, 10% of the people in the world are, are, are winners. Actually, 20% are winners. I mean, they are the type that attract people. They're the, the leaders of the leaders. They attract. And then you have the whiners, the ones that are always complaining. They're always seeing the limitations. They're always seeing the walls. They're always seeing the obstacles and complaining about it. And then you have in the middle what I call the betweeners, the wieners. And they follow one voice or the other. And I always tell people, when they ask me, how did you break the cycle? I stopped listening to the whiners. That's how I broke the cycle. I got out by listening to people that can make me better, not bitter. And when you do that, things will change for your life. I guarantee it. And, and Emory, I have you also didn't want to you. play the wiener game. That's <laughs> 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 nothing to do with race is what I'm saying. I, I have to apologize, Dan Marie, because I kind of cut you off there in order to get Louis to uh, elucidate what he was saying. But but what were you trying to put in there? Because I want to get that in there too. Yeah, I think I think we've all got the same message. It's, it's what you focus on. And so for me, thirty years ago, I was focusing on the injustice, and that's what we got. That's what I got. I got injustice. That's why I saw women with injustice. Now my view has changed. I just see female prime ministers. I see the the queen being, you know just so well respected in the country i see my husband his boss is a woman her boss is a woman the ceo of their boss is a woman and there's women senior managers i'm seeing so many more powerful women because it's no longer a judgment that i make of um of limitation so don't focus on the limitations focus on your opportunities and make your opportunities. That's really good. That's a great way to end the, the show. But before we actually can't quite end it yet because we have to actually get some information from Rick before he goes. So, Rick, first of all, thank you for joining us on the show and for sharing oh. your, your perspectives on all this. It's been really a good conversation. Um, yeah. Tell people how they can find out about you. You actually have a book called Gentech. Mention yeah. something about the book yeah. for a moment. Tell them about that. But mainly yeah. tell them how to find out about you. Yeah, I wrote a little book here. It's kind of the, it's called the American Story of Gen, Gen Tech. It's Gen Tech, the American Story of Technology Change and Who We Really Are. And it's just a argument against some of the common generational frames that that we put on people and, and such. Uh, I do not send it internationally. It's just too expensive for me to send it internationally. But uh, if you're in the states, uh, I'll, I'll make it work for you. Uh, and, and I, if you want to get a print copy, now if you're interested in a, in a digital copy, I believe you can get that through Amazon and such. Uh, and they, they probably can get you a print copy as well. Amazon. It's a good place to go for the book. It's available there. Uh, learn more about me, rickchromie.com. That's. And, and the spelling on that, chromie? Chromie. See, just think chrome head. You know? <laughs> or chrome, chrome dome. Everybody called me chrome dome. Well, chromie is add a Y. Yeah, rickchromie.com. All right, very good. So, well, thank you very much for joining us on the show. It's been great. Thank you, Louie and Anne-Marie. And uh, thank you to the uh, live stream li- uh, listener who gave us that great question at the end. That was that was really worthwhile the last 10 minutes there. So thank you very much for that. And thank you to our podcast listeners everywhere. We'll see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you.